This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. You'll notice that I do not have a co-host with me this week, and that's because we're taking a one-episode break from our usual programming to bring you two very special interviews from previous episodes of Working. The first one is Working co-host Karen Hahn's interview with our other Working co-host, Isaac Butler. You'll hear them discuss Isaac's book, The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And then, after that, their roles will reverse and you'll hear Isaac interview Karen about her book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema. So it's been almost a year since Isaac released his book about method acting, and we're happy to report that it's been praised over and over by critics and readers alike. The Method was named one of the best books of 2022 by The New Yorker, Time Magazine, The San Francisco Chronicle, Vox and Salon. In it, Isaac traces the history of method acting from its birth in 19th century Russia to its impact on American theatre and film. It's a really fascinating book and I highly recommend checking it out if you haven't already. So here it is, Karen Hahn's interview with Isaac Butler about the method, how the 20th century learned to act. Hi, Isaac. How are you? It's surreal to be on the other side. (laughs) All right. So just so we don't disorient our listeners too much, you are on today to talk about your new book, which is also so exciting. Can you tell us what your book is called and what it's about? So my new book is called The Method, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. And it traces the roughly 100-year-long birth, rise, and decline of the method, of method acting, of this new idea of what acting should do and what it should be that transformed uh, popular culture first in Russia, thanks to this director, actor, and theorist named Konstantin Stanislavski, and then in the United States, thanks to this man named Lee Strasberg and a whole bunch of other people, some marquee names like Aaliyah Kazan. Zan, Marlon Brando, Stella Adler, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Ellen Burstyn. These are these are all people you'll meet uh, over the course of the book. How did you settle on a topic like this? Because I feel like, for me at least, who where I'm like sort of a method noob, I guess it seems like such a huge undertaking. Yes, I probably should have realized that before I, <laughs> I wrote a proposal for it. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that Ben Hyman, my amazing editor at Bloomsbury, was also the editor for The World Only Spins Forward, the book I did with Dan Kois. And we were out to lunch to celebrate or, you know, whatever, one of those periodic lunches one gets with your editor. And he said, hey, why don't you propose another book? 
and I racked my brain for ideas and I came up with a bunch of them. And some of them I were like, that's too weird. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I said, hey, I have a bunch of ideas here. Here's a few. And one of them was doing it was just then called the method of history at that point. Yeah. And he was like that one. Get me a proposal for that one. And so um, then I you know, started doing the research process for what would become the book and really realizing that it was a really interesting compelling story that had a good plot which i think was actually really important for me and for the book because as you point out it is a huge subject it's and there's a lot going on and if you have a compelling plot that you can kind of hang that on then you can start to structure that figure out what's going to be included and what's not and also keep the reader's attention for what's a pretty big journey you mentioned in the introduction that you were previously an actor and had your own experiences with mm -hmm. method acting and that it's something that you've been thinking about for a long time. How do you approach the research process for something that you're already familiar with? Like, is there any kind of measure of, I guess, blank slating it or what's your process? So what I started with was some idea of what I knew, which was actually from the perspective of today, nothing. I knew nothing. John Snow. <laughs> um, but it was probably more than the average person knew about the method. But, you know, I, I knew some stuff about the group. I knew that uh, this stuff had started in Russia with Stanislavski. I knew a lot of the sort of urban legends that have mm -hmm. emerged around it and everything like that. So I had some ideas of the story. And then I just asked myself, well, what is it I need to know to tell this story? Right. And the first thing I needed to know were some actual factual stuff, you know, like, like who was this Stanislavski guy and what was his life like? Mm -hmm. And <laughs> luckily there's three biographies of him that you can go out there and read. And then it would be like, okay, well, this biography is mentioning the Russian critic Vissarion Belinsky, right? And it's like, well, who is Belinsky? And then you go and you read some stuff about him. And so it was really just about paying attention to whatever questions came up in my mind every time I was encountering a new thing of research and then following those questions as far as they wanted me to go would then provoke new questions and new questions and new questions. Mm -hmm. And then I would start talking to other, you know, experts in the field and they would recommend books to me and I would go out and read those or I would go to a research library or whatever, but it was always motivated by what do I need to know to tell this story? Yeah. And, once enough of that had started happening, things started knitting together. You start to notice the coincidences or like, oh, this thing happened in 1898. This other thing also is happening in 1898. Isn't that interesting? Or, you know, whatever it is. And they just start kind of coming together and coalescing and, and new, more complicated questions come out of that. Some of them then become the kinds of questions that can't actually be answered by research. They can be answered by original writing and thinking. Mm -hmm. And then the book starts flowing, you know? <laughs> um, I, you have sort of answered my follow up question where I, I wanted to kind of talk about the book process as well with regards sure. to like, working on my book, I have pretty clearly delineated chapters. And the way that I've been working on it is like going out and researching what I know that I need for this one chapter, finishing that, and then starting that again for the next one, because yeah. it's kind of more clearly defined, I guess, but it seems like you had to take kind of a, a broader approach and try to gather everything at once. Is that how you would define it? And is also, is that how you prefer to work on a project? So actually I had a really specific process for the first part of the book okay. that I then abandoned for the second and third <laughs> part of the book. And so the first part of the book takes place in Russia. Mm -hmm. It starts in the 1890s. It ends in the 1920s. 
But what I did for part one, because I was also really struggling to not get distracted by my computer. So what I did for part one was for each of the chapters, I would do the exact same thing that you did, Karen. I was like, I'm going to write one chapter a month. And how I did that was I researched them for two weeks and then I outlined them in an incredibly detailed way for a week, including like what quotes I was going to use and with citations in a Google doc that I then, and then I bought an iPad for this purpose. <laughs> I would take the iPad with the Google doc, but in work offline mode Yeah, to yeah. Uh, the now no longer with us coffee shop, 61 local on Aww. Bergen street. RIP. Um, and I would handwrite the chapter. Wow. And then I would type the chapter up after I was mm-hmm. done with it. And sometimes the handwriting would be like, uh, you know, fact here, TK. It's not like I knew every, um, and so that's how I would do that after every month. Mm-hmm. And that was really useful because I really needed to not be on the internet for long stretches of time. It was really interfering with my work. And also I think handwriting, it helped me figure out the voice. I write differently with my hand than I do typing. And you also get like a little freebie revision when you type up the handwriting stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Once that was done and I got to part two, once part one was done, which is say a a bad first draft of part one was done and I started moving on to part two, I realized that the characters overlapped so much and the time was a bit compressed because then we're going from 1920 to 1940. Uh, And actually, well, and eventually it became 1920 to 1950, but I didn't know that when I set out (laughs) to do it, um, that I wanted to do as much of the research as possible and then write it in one go. And so that's how I did part two. And then part three radically changed because part three was written during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. There was a month I had to take off to do childcare. And because yeah. I was frankly so anxious that I couldn't write or read for a month, you know, living in New York City. And then we uh, moved out of the city and I brought a suitcase of books with me. Wow. Um, and then any other books I could load onto my device, I did. And then I was just, you know, then I had to, I had a different schedule because I was, someone had to be watching Iris. And, you know, so the third had a much more chaotic I would say, way of going about it. And can you tell us a little bit about structuring the book? You you mentioned a little bit about um, kind of dividing it up into acts, but I, I wanted to know if you could go a little bit deeper into that. Um, you mentioned that you wanted to tackle the book like a biography. Was there ever any doubt on that front? Like, were there other approaches that you were thinking of or tried? Um, how did you decide on the acts and then the chapters therein? It was always very clear to me that it was going to have a three-act structure. I wanted it to have a theatrical structure because it's a book that's primarily about theater makers. And so that was a kind of cute idea. (laughs) And because it breaks up actually pretty neatly into thirds, there's a Russian section and then there's the emergence of it in the United States uh, these ideas in the United States during the Great Depression with the group theater. And then that sort of gets you all the way through the founding of the actor studio. And then the next part, which is about its emergence and its sort of stratospheric rise to becoming this mainstream idea of acting in America, that just seemed to break very easily into thirds. Yeah. Uh, The biography idea came really early. And part of it was that it seemed to me that these ideas were living things, that they kept changing and transforming and people's thoughts about them kept changing and transforming. It was not fixed. And I also thought that if I made the idea the protagonist, then... That would really help me figure out how to include and not include various information because there's lots of people in this book, but you don't get everything about their life stories usually. Right. And so um, trying to figure out like what didn't belong 
you need some rules about that, that you can have some rigor around. And so the rule that I came up with was the method is the protagonist of this story. Mm -hmm. And the nonfiction form that has a protagonist is either a biography or memoir, right? And so I started Mm -hmm. thinking of it as a biography. That's amazing. And I guess to sort of jump off of the back of that question, the whole task of this book is one that's kind of inherently difficult because defining the method is difficult. Yeah. And and kind of defining Stanislavski's teachings is difficult as well. What was it like trying to pin down all these ideas that people before you also struggled to pin down? I mean, it was sort of freeing in a way that people had so much trouble pinning this stuff down because then I'm like, (laughs) oh, maybe there is no getting it right. And what Uh you can do is in a fair-minded, open-hearted way, be as honest as possible about what we know and what we don't know and what what people are confused about and what they aren't. Also, those moments of confusion are often great plot points. They're great story (laughs) points. You know, like if you view these arguments less as, okay, my job going into this, I have these two people who disagree in their interpretation of it. And my job is to figure out who's right. Well, that's one kind of way of approaching it. And the way I usually try to approach it is these two people have this fight about this thing. Isn't that interesting? And and isn't what came out of that fight interesting? That's all usually way more interesting than what I would have to say about it. There are some things that I weigh in on. <laughs> is Marlon Brando a method actor? The answer is no, he's not. And he would tell mm-hmm. you he's not. And he would get mad at you if you said he was. <laughs> Uh, uh, even though, and so, but then that provokes a really interesting question, which is, well, why does everyone think he's a method actor? You know, mm-hmm. as long as you keep getting back to interesting questions, the reader's going to have those questions, and 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 that creates a, a sense of narrative tension that helps pull them through the book. Um, that said, there are things we do know for sure, and I didn't, or as close to for sure as possible, I didn't want to be cutesy about that stuff. There are core ideas at the center of the method. There are actual techniques. There are actual things that people taught and did. And those things had a huge impact, particularly on American dramatic writing, acting, and directing in theater and film and TV. And I wanted to be clear about what those were, because one of the arguments about the book is, you know, the method is one of the big ideas of the 20th century. It, it is one of the the things that just transforms how we consider human experience. And so obviously there's something real there. It's not that it has no content at all. And so you have to be very clear about that when those moments arise. In kind of making all these storylines work together, do you think that your idea of what the method is changed at all? Or do you fi- did you find that kind of challenging to, I guess, make it coalesce? I would say that my feelings about the method changed constantly. You know, there were times Mm -hmm. in the middle, you know, you read a bunch of stuff from people of the era calling it a load of crap and you're like, oh, maybe it's a load (laughs) of crap. You know, but then you watch a movie starring Jane Fonda or Sidney Poitier or Paul Newman or whatever and you're like, oh, actually, no, there's something real here because this is is great (laughs) acting. This is really great acting and it is different than what came before. Um, So my emotional attachment to it changed all the time, you know, depending on what day it was. Um... In terms of my ideas about what it is, I actually tried to just be as open-minded about that as possible and to not have super fixed ideas and to go where the research took me in as honest a way as possible. You know, like how reporters say, go where the story takes you. I tried to kind of do that with the method. And again, there are things that are actually like, this is 100% the method. There are certain exercises, for example, that Lee Strasberg taught that are the core of method acting practice. And like, we know what they are because people wrote them down and people teach them. He wrote in his posthumously published book, he describes them. So it's like, you know, there's stuff 
there that's very firm. We'll be right back with more of Karen's conversation with Isaac Butler. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, let's return to Karen's conversation with Isaac Butler. You mentioned this a little bit, um, both in our conversation previously, and as well as in a previous episode of Working, where you said you were reading a lot of fiction while writing this book because you wanted it to have narrative momentum Mm -hmm. for it to feel like a a real story playing out. Can you talk a little bit about how you make something that is all in the past or that can be kind of is all over really in terms of what you're the sources that you're drawing from, how you make that coherent, how you make that into something that feels alive and moving. Yes, I can. Cause I've been thinking about this a lot lately, actually. And mm-hmm. um, it all comes down to two things, structure and narrative tension. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about narrative tension first. A, a writer I saw once talk on a panel when I was in graduate school said this thing that I've taken with me ever since, which is that narrative tension is like money in the bank. And any time you want to do anything in your book that isn't generating narrative tension, you're spending mm-hmm. narrative tension. So you're withdrawing Ooh. money from the bank with your ATM card, right? And he said- That's so interesting. Yeah. And then he said, the way you generate narrative tension is to create questions in the reader's mind that they want to see answered. And so in a murder mystery, whodunit, right? Um mm-hmm. In a thriller, what's going to happen next? Is this character going to survive? Um, but the truth of the matter is all sorts of stuff that isn't genre work trades in narrative tension. It's it, You can have stuff that doesn't have conventional plot or character or whatever that still might have a, a question you're getting the reader to think about. Great essays do this, I think, because you get so excited by the way the person is thinking that you're like, what? new thought are they going to have next? That's a form of narrative (laughs) tension in a way. And so I was really, really cognizant of that, of making this. What questions was I trying to get into the reader's head? You know, how could I get them as close to the events in a kind of you are there way as possible? Yeah. Because if the reader wants to know what happens next, you can spend that, that money, so to speak, on all sorts of other stuff like thematic content or, you know, there's a lot of complicated ideas that I need to take space and time to explain. Um, and if you just read those complicated ideas in a row, it's going to kind of be boring. I mean, I think I did a good job of explaining them in an exciting way, but like you still, you know, you have to have managed the tension in such a way that the reader is interested in hearing about that then, you know? Um, the second thing is structure which came in a way out of Stanislavski's ideas, which was this idea of the problem. And Stanislavski taught that characters are always doing things and they're doing things in response to a problem. They have what he called the Russian word translates as task slash problem. Uh, And that's what motivates action. There's a thing they need and then they do something to get it. And that could be saying a line. It's not always physical. Um, And so, 
I kept thinking about where are the problems and I kept thinking about how do we get from problem to action to problem to action. This character has a problem. This subject, because they're real persons, so we call them subjects. Konstantin Stanislavski <laughs> has a problem. Uh, Russian theater is moribund and too attached to convention. That motivates him to take action, founding the Moscow Art Theater. And so actually using that kind of theatrical script analysis way of thinking about dramatic action really helped me structure these chapters that were always going from someone who has a problem to someone who has a problem to someone who has a problem. That's fascinating. And I, I actually did have one more structure question, sure. um, which has to do with just how much time the book spans. Like, obviously, there's a lot of method to get in there. How did you figure out how you wanted to pace it? Like, how did you figure out what could be compressed? What kind of had to be taken through with a comb? A lot of that grew organically out of, you know, I would mm -hmm. be writing it and then I would read it over and I'd be like, this is boring. I need to hand wave past this. I mean, <laughs> I mean, some of it was really just trusting my own boredom. There comes a point yeah. as a writer where you can't trust your own boredom because you've read the book so many times. Like this is like as you're getting mm -hmm. to the end of copy edits and stuff, you you grow to hate the book. I mean, and it happens to yeah. everyone that I know. Um, uh, I'm yeah. just warning you, I'm Karen. I'm in that stage oh, right okay, now yeah. where I'm like, I just wanted to get yeah, published. Yeah, yeah. I, as soon as it's out there, I will love it. But right now I'm like, <laughs> I always had again, this thing of like the method is the story. Harold Clerman's not mm -hmm. the story. Even Stanislavski isn't the story. Even Lee Strasberg isn't the story. The method is the story. So what is happening to the method in this moment? And what does a reader need to understand to know what's happening to the method? So to give an example, uh, I barely talk about Arthur Miller in this book at all, even though he's a very important writer and he's important to the method. Death of a Salesman is an important production, but it's not as important as Streetcar Named Desire and they happen in the same year. And so I just had to make a choice that it's like, I'm going to focus on the one that's really important and that one is Streetcar. I would also say that, again, my editor was really great about this. He was an outside reader and I had another outside, I had two other outside readers while I was writing it, Catherine Nichols and Mark Armstrong. And Catherine mm -hmm. and Mark were both really good at being like, eh, you're probably going on too much here. You probably don't need mm -hmm. this or I don't understand this idea. Can you say more? And so between yeah. all of that feedback, uh, I, that also helped fig me figure it out. I don't think I could have figured it out on my own. Just trusting my gut. Although good gut. I think it's good gut. But, you know, you everyone needs outside help. We mentioned a little bit at the beginning that you used to be an actor and that your own experiences with um, these ideas kind of informed your interest in it and why this was a subject that you wanted to come back to. Tell us a little bit about your personal relationship to the acting techniques in the book. Like, do you feel like the fact that you had experience with them made you kind of more aware of how to talk about these things? I do because I had actually done the exercises in question. Right. I was a child stage actor. In mostly musical theater. And uh, I performed at this theater called the Studio Theater, which still exists. And its founder, Joy Zinneman, was the director who I worked with. And uh, she really wanted me to take acting seriously, which in part meant learning Stanislavski, you know. And so for my 13th birthday, she gave me a copy of Richard Boleslavsky's Acting the First Six Lessons, which is the first book in Your English. 13th birthday. Yeah. It's the first book in English about Stanislavski's ideas. Uh, you know, um, Richard Boleslavsky is really the man who brought those ideas to the United States and taught them. Uh, when I was in high school, they invited me to take the adult level classes at the Studio Theater's acting school which were the, the first two years were called principles of realism and character and emotion. 
And so they were all really Stanislavski based. And I learned how to break down scripts into beats and figure out what your objective is. And, you know, we did animal pantomimes. Uh, I remember one time I was a kangaroo and lots, <laughs> all sorts of other exercises. And in character and emotion, we had to do an exercise where we had to bring in a physical object that had deep importance to us. And there were two reasons behind this. One was when you watch the other students present their objects, you would see how emotion really looked. And it doesn't look like the conventional ways we think that it looks, you know, like oftentimes people don't cry. They try not to cry, for example. And then, um, but we would also quite possibly discover something that we could use to get in touch with those emotions ourselves and to trigger them should we ever need them in our work. And it was a really, I remember a lot of that night. It's the, actually the only part of that class I really truly remember deeply is that night. Cause you know, there was like a guy who had like the cane that belonged to his dead father. Uh, and let's, I just remember him looking down at the ground and tapping it while he was telling us the story. Like he never didn't like, that was how the emotion expressed itself. He didn't cry. He would just stop and be silent and tap it on the ground and like hmm. touch it in this very significant way. Anyway, when it came my turn, it was, it was an obituary was the object of a friend, an older friend who worked at the theater who had died of AIDS six months prior, I want to say. And I just, I just fucking lost it. I mean, I was like sobbing. It was just, I was completely out of control. And Nancy, the wonderful teacher who, who died a few years ago, sadly, um, Nancy very kindly kind of managed me out of that. But you know, it was just a really intense experience, you know? And so as an, an adult, once I stopped being an actor, when you would read about, you know, people talking about, oh, these sense memory exercises, these emotion memory exercises, they're really dangerous. I was like, oh, I've actually done one of those, you know? I had this intense experience with it. I guess we sort of talked about this at the beginning of our conversation as well, where the misconceptions about the method are kind of, they're just Legion. so many of them. And especially, I, I feel like you weigh in on this on Twitter a lot as well, just because people tend to tweet the most wrong opinions i guess about the At method me. what How happens is the- if someone tweets <laughs> something about the method that's incorrect now people know that it's like a stimulus response thing they'll just be like quote tweet like oh at parabasis should weigh in on this <gasps> um it's funny because you know i I try to resist my inner pedant. I don't want to be a pedantic person. And I do think that language evolves. I am at heart a descriptivist. The meanings of words change over time and they change socially. And that's fine by me. But it is one of the fascinating things about this story. One of the things that got me so excited about telling this story was you have this term, the method or method acting. And people who teach it and practice it will tell you it is one thing. And then the public will tell you and journalists and sometimes film actors will tell you it's this other thing that is almost diametrically opposed to it. So how does something become its opposite in the public eye? That's an interesting story to me. And so, you know, chasing that down was really fun. I try to sort of plant seeds of it. I mean, there's a trail of breadcrumbs that leads up to the kind of reveal that, hey, this thing you think is the method is not the method that used to be in Mm -hmm. the intro. And then we were just like, this is too confusing. We're leaving this out. But, you know, there's stuff in part one that's deliberately planted there so that in part three, when we talk about it, (laughs) reference it, it's sort of like, see, I was telling you this. Um, People think the method is what Daniel Day-Lewis does or what uh, Robert De Niro did for Raging Bull or uh, on a sort of self-parody level what Jared Leto does, right? Where you do this sort of very complicated 
uh, form of research where you're sort of trying to live as close to the way your character lives. And then when you're on set, you don't break character. Maybe you rewrite your lines to be more like what you think the character is. You're sort of very serious all the time and you're uh, maybe self-important or, you know, whatever it is. That's what people think the method is. The actual method are the, 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 what I call the private method sometimes is, um, <laughs> actually about unlocking the individual actor's idiosyncrasies and psychology and emotion the actor the actor's own material because actors are both painter and paint and so it's about making sure your paint palette has as many colors as possible so that you can then bring that to the character so it's actually rooted in the self and individuality and emotion and psychology um not research and behavior and in fact, Lee Strasberg, the codifier of the method and the person who taught it, was very opposed to actors doing too much research. He thought it, it, it ruined them. He thought it was too, you know, in the head and it would distract them from what they needed to be doing. I have one last kind of book process question. Um, at what point, because I think this is something that a lot of writers struggle with, at what point do you decide that you are done with it? Like, aside from feeling tired of it, like at what point do you decide this is done, this tells the story it needs to without going too far or without not having enough? Well, six months after your deadline. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. I did get one extension on my deadline because of COVID. You know, mm-hmm. I, I had to write my editor. And yeah, was like, I don't actually know when I'm going to write right now because I'm like a full-time stay-at-home dad. So, you know, and he was really cool about it. But um, I wrote a full coherent draft and then I read the whole thing. And then I knew what the changes were that I wanted to make to it. Some of which required a little bit of additional research, but most of it was just cutting things and rephrasing things and stuff like that. And then I did that pass. I I did one or two more passes. I think it was only one to do a bunch of cuts. And then I sent it to my editor and then he said, you know, this is in good shape, but you need to do one more full rewrite before I do line edits. You need to cut, at least 10,000 words. And here are some thoughts about what I think the book is really about. And that was actually one of the most useful things he did to me was to articulate to me, this is what your book is doing. And he didn't even say you need to do that more. It wasn't prescriptive. It was literally like, this is what your book is doing. And he said, so uh, just to think about that as you figure out what to keep and what not to keep. And and I did a big rewrite with that. Again, it was mostly cutting stuff, you know, uh, and then wrote an intro and an afterward and sent it to him. And then he was like, great, we're basically ready to do line edits, except uh, your intro doesn't work at all. You need a completely different intro. Let's hop <laughs> on the phone and discuss it. We hashed out what an intro would yeah. be and uh, which is basically the intro you you have in your hands right now. And then you know, eventually you get to the point where he says, you know, this is done enough that it is submitted, which means you get the, you get a, the next checkup from your advance and it kicks into gear this whole um, production process. So the weird thing is, is that it, when it's your first time writing your book by yourself, you think, ah, I have submitted it. It's in production now. I'm basically done. You are nowhere near done. It is not, you know, they say it's a marathon, not a sprint, but it's actually a series of marathons there. You know, I hired an outside fact checker to read through it. Uh, I went, when going through and doing the notes, I did another round of fact checking. It was copy edited multiple times. The last round of which was just making sure all the names were spelled right. There was a guy Mm -hmm. at Bloomsbury who did that. You know, there's like a thousand little things. So on some level, I felt like the book was done when they said, okay, we have literally sent it to the printers. You cannot change anything more. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but there might yeah. be, <laughs> there will probably be little teeny factual things that were incorrect that we have to fix for the paperback. That happens all the time with, with nonfiction, you know, um, even though we did all this other work to make sure that didn't happen. It's like, it's a big book. You're going to get something, you know, the likelihood is something in it is something small and it is, is incorrect. So in a weird way, it feels like I'm still not done. Um, and that I'll never be done. <laughs> but, but in terms of the big thing of like, okay, this is done. The nice thing is, is that like, in a sense, your boss tells you. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's f- weirdly freeing in a way. Yeah. <laughs> it's not out of your hands at a certain point. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your method, writing about the method. Um, If you enjoyed the stories that Isaac told about the method, a lot of them are in the book. So I highly recommend going out to get a copy because it is fantastic. Thank you again so much for taking the time to talk with us. This was such a pleasure. It's fun to be a guest on this show. Why does anyone (laughs) ever turn us down when we ask them? (laughs) This is a subtweet. Yeah. After the break, Isaac and Karen will reverse roles and we'll hear about Karen's book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema. Stick around. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. We're back, and it's time to hear a conversation about Karen Han's book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema. The book is part of a series conceived by publishers Little White Lies and Abrams Books, which highlights the work of famous directors. One book focused on the movies of Paul Thomas Anderson, another on Sofia Coppola's films, and now we have Karen's book about Bong Joon-ho, the Korean director who most famously brought us Parasite. Karen's book is the complete guide to all of Bong Joon-ho's movies, plus interviews and photos, and most important, keen observations and critical analysis by the great Karen Han. So here it is, Isaac Butler's interview with Karen Han about Bong Joon-ho dissident cinema. Karen Han, welcome to Working. Thank you so much. It's so exciting to be here as the guest. I know. It's great. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. (laughs) You know, normally when you and I are talking into microphones, we're talking about someone else's work. But this time we get to talk about and celebrate your first book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema, which is now in bookstores everywhere. But before we do that, I want to just back up a little bit because... 
I'm teaching like college sophomores and juniors right now. And so I get a lot of questions about careers and things like that. And so I've become very interested in talking to our guests about it. So can you tell us a little bit about like the early part of your journey of deciding that you wanted to do, I guess at at first it was freelance writing about film and popular culture and kind of, you know, what led you to want to do that and, and, and how you got started in it? I mean, it all really started with me knowing like what I was passionate about and trying to find what was at least adjacent or kind of touching upon that. Like I've always been a really big movies and TV and culture in general person. And I went to college for art history because that was like about as adjacent as I could get without my parents being like, you can't, (laughs) you cannot go to film school. They didn't say that explicitly. I'm sure my mom will listen to this podcast. So I don't mean this negatively because I really did love my art history degree. But when I graduated from college, the question was like, okay, now what can I do with this in the world that I'm interested in? And the first few jobs that I had out of college were museum jobs, like because that is kind of the natural track for an art history major. But while I was in those jobs, I was like, oh, this is not really where I want to be, partially because I I hadn't really realized up to that point, like how much of the art world is revolves around like money, (laughs) which is not (laughs) like super optimistic, I guess, as far as like culture goes. And also the fact that there was not that much lateral or vertical movement in the particular positions that I had been able to get in museums at that point. So I ended up just looking for arts related jobs. I got a job in the development department at Play Arts Horizons. Uh, For those of you who don't know, that basically means I got a job helping fundraise for the company. And while I was there, I was like, obviously, spreadsheets aren't what I want to do either. Like, I do want to do something that's more related to the arts. So while I was there, I would go to my job. And then after I got off of work, I would just write stuff for my own blog, basically. I just write down like film thoughts. And after a while, I started using those to pitch to small publications. And then I would use the clips that I got from those publications to pitch to larger publications and so on and so forth. And that was my intro, I guess, into this path. Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, you've been a freelancer. You had a staff job at Polygon, another one at, at a website called Slate.com that our <laughs> listeners may be familiar with. You know, in all of that, you've done a lot of stuff. You've done, you know, specific film reviews. You've done larger trend pieces. You've done interviews. You, you've done, you know, also humor writing, you know, even. Um, is there a particular kind of subgenre of that that you feel like is your wheelhouse or that you really enjoy to doing the most? I mean, I, I I don't want to like brag or sound like I'm too my own horn, but do I do think I'm pretty good across the board. Yeah, Stuff that yeah. I especially enjoy, though, like I really do like doing reviews, but I think that's an opportunity that not a lot of people get because like the staff writers will usually get those opportunities. And even though I was on staff, I was like, I would say like the lowest rung. So not everything would fall into my lap that way. And I also do really do like doing interviews. And I do think that I'm good at them. And I do good research before I go into them. So I'm not asking the same questions that have always been asked. Um, That said, like, I didn't really get to do that much long form, like really long form writing, like anything past a 1000 words, I would say in my entire career, largely because I don't know, the media landscape makes it very, very hard for young writers to do anything of that length or something that requires that much time. Right. Because, you know, people don't realize this, but, you know, if you're sort of the junior staff writer, a lot of the stuff you're writing is like the ending of the terror season one explained or, you know, it's it's yeah. it's sometimes less letting you stretch those other muscles. 
It can be really frustrating, honestly, because the reason that you were hired at that low kind of low position on the totem pole, so to speak, is because like the higher writers don't want to do that stuff. They don't want to spend their time <laughs> doing it. But the problem that I often encountered, like, I mean, I also don't want to rag on that necessarily because there's some stuff that is really fun to do in that kind of short form way. But there is a lot of grind, like just writing up this trailer dropped here it is or something like that, right. where there's no real substance in it. And one thing that I found really frustrating and that I commiserate a lot with with my peers is that a lot of the times the people who are managing you will be like, hey, why don't you do like a really big profile, like a really long form piece? And it's like, I want to do that, but I don't have the time and I don't have the resources provided to me by this company, by this site in order to do that. Mm. Like I recall at one of the previous companies I worked at, they were like, oh, look at these writers, for example, like look at the great work they do. And if you clicked through to their byline on the site, it was like one piece every six months. And it's like, that's why they can do that. They can spend all that time researching and writing and making sure that they have all this substance. But if you're writing a thousand words a day, you absolutely don't really have the bandwidth to do that. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, the last two big assignments I had, uh, one of which I just filed this week, you know, I booked those like three months before they were due because I knew mm-hmm. they would involve a lot of research, you know, and I was just like, and then I just slowly worked on them in the background so I could, you know, read the biography of the writer I was writing about and, you know, and all that sort of stuff. Like yeah. time is its own limited resource. Very much so. So, you know, it's fascinating then that you would make the leap from that to writing a whole book <laughs> on a on a filmmaker that you and I both love. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk to you about this. So, you know, for people who haven't seen the book yet, which is now in stores and you should all go get it. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's it's sensational. Um, <laughs> can you tell our listeners about Bong Joon-ho Dissident Cinema? Yeah. Um, so if any of our listeners are, uh, for those listeners who are cinephiles, rather, you may already be familiar with this series of monographs that Abrams and Little White Lies work on together. Um, for instance, Adam Naiman and Hannah Strong have written for them. They have big coffee table books on like the Coen brothers, David Fincher, and Sofia Coppola, uh, on and on. And my book is kind of the latest in that series, and specifically talks about the works of the Korean director Bong Joon-ho. So the way that these books are structured is you have have a chapter basically devoted to each of the director's movies, like doing critical analysis. Um, And then you will also have uh, some interviews with their closest collaborators. So the way that my book is structured is I have a lovely forward by the filmmaker David Lowry. Thank you so much, David. An intro by me. Uh, seven chapters, one for each of Bong's movies, then a chapter on uh, his short film and music video work, and then a section with six interviews and then an outro. So it's a lot of stuff in there. And I think hopefully if you're at all interested in his films, something in there for you. Yeah, totally. And how could you not be interested in his films? (laughs) I mean, come on. Um, So how did it come about? How did you, you know, I know that you're very public about your enthusiasm for director Bong, but like, did they approach you? Did you pitch them? Did someone match make between the two of you? So the kind of genesis of it, I guess, was when Parasite came out, I was a very vocal proponent of it online. And I, I, I mean, I came up with the hashtag Bong Hive to sort of support it. And it went really, really like shockingly viral. I credit you for its win of Best Picture. I just want you to know that. I there's I think like I don't think like you're a hundred percent responsible, but I think you're more responsible than anyone not employed by that movie. Oh, well, thank you, Isaac. But uh because like that was so 
prominent. And I did get like some media appearances out of it, which was really, really wild. Uh, but because of that, and because I was already sort of friendly with the folks at Little White Lies, or like we were Twitter mutuals already, to put it very, very serious, like coldly. But the very wonderful editor, David Jenkins, reached out to me to see if I would be at all interested in doing this. And I just looked through my emails and I first was contacted, I think, in May of 2020. So that was when we first started talking about the book. Um, And he was basically saying, like, we would really love to do a Bong book next. And we thought of you to do it, like, again, because you have talked so much about his work and are a culture writer. So that was the start of it. I was very, very lucky that they reached out to me. So for our listeners who maybe aren't quite the bong enthusiast you or, you or I are, um, <laughs> what is it that makes his films special? I mean, there's so much. I really love his movies so much. But I think part of it is I don't think any of his movies are predictable in any way. Like there's always something there that you don't see coming. You, I don't think there's ever a time where you'll be watching the movie and be like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. Like I know how this is going to end. There's always some subversion of expectations, not just in narrative, but also in the style that he uses to show like what is going on, his musical choices, and even the way that he builds his stories. Like there's... For example, like take Memories of Murder. Like it's a movie that's been compared to David Fincher's Zodiac a lot because they're both like these murder cases. But you can take it a very surface value. Like it is a story about this murder case. But if you dig deeper into the details that he plants throughout the films and also the historical context that he's chosen to tell the story, like granted, it's not necessarily that he chose it because like it is based on a real life serial murder case in Korea. But There's a lot of social commentary baked in there in all of his films in a way that's not moralizing, I would say, which I think is a trap that a lot of films tend to fall into, where if you're trying to set out to have a message, to say something important, then it's kind of too obvious. It's too blatant. But he is so focused on telling a good story that it all just really binds together in a really organic and really thrilling way for all of his films. So you talked earlier about you know, trying to use the things you're interested in and and passionate about to like, you know, create work out of it. Right. Obviously like you have a great love of director Bong's work, (laughs) uh, but it's not like you can just be like, this guy is awesome for 300 pages with photos. Right. So, so how do you go from, you know, like how do you use your enthusiasm to kind of create lines of inquiry into his, his filmmaking and ways of thinking about it? I think it's sort of jumping off of instinct to a degree. Like, for example, like one of the things that's really striking about the movie Mother is this final shot that's taken like through the window of a bus. It's absolutely incredible. And when you watch that, if you even take just one step back, you're like, how did they do this? This seems really, really hard. The sun has to be in the right place. The bus has to be in the right place and going the, the right speed for the camera to be able to catch it and then catch the light coming through. Then you naturally like have these things that you latch onto that you want to research further about. So that was kind of like the big way that I would blow out chapters in a way where I already know there are some things that I can talk about in terms of critical analysis that doesn't require like too much further research. Like I could say like X thing in this scene like is pointing to this scene. It's directing your attention this way. But for stuff like that, you can look at interviews done with the director and with the crew and sort of see more about the process of making it because I think that's the sort of fun thing about getting to do extended critical analysis where part of it is what you would do for a review for instance like here is just my analysis of this here is 
my take on it, basically. But then the rest of it is here is here's the facts to a certain degree, because critical analysis, like part of it is just your opinion and you have to be able to back it up. But then there's this stuff where it's like, this is what the director said. This is what they actually did. This is what happened on set. And it all really coheres into a single picture. If you are lucky enough, (laughs) sometimes it's not easy to do. Right, right. Totally. I mean, that's a great point that, you know, if you just start with what you're interested in and then just focus on it enough that you have a question, and then try to answer that question. Something interesting is going to come out there. It's like a treasure hunt in that way. Yeah, like, yeah. You know vaguely what you're looking for, but as you go, there's more and more things that you find out. Was there a lot of stuff that you didn't wind up using that you looked into and that you investigated, you know, of those kind of going off instinct and then eventually it was like, ah, actually, that goes on the cutting room floor? Honestly, not too much. Like, I think if there was one thing that I would change or that I would like expand in this book, it would be to try to get a translator for the Korean criticism or Korean like Mm. interviews, like Korean press, basically, that was written about his work. Because I'm conversationally fluent, I would say, in Korean, but my reading and writing are pretty slow. And I there I my technical vocabulary is very, very lacking. Um, I think I covered a lot of ground that I wouldn't have with the interviews with his collaborators, but I don't know. There's still a lot of writing out there that I haven't read about him purely because of an accessibility and kind of a language barrier. We'll be right back with more of Isaac's conversation with Karen Hahn. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Okay, let's return to Isaac's conversation with Karen Hahn. Another component of this is, of course, the kind of like exterior contextual stuff, you know, about Korean culture or about Mm -hmm. Bong Joon-ho's place within the Korean new wave because he comes up as part of a generation of other directors. Uh, How did you figure out kind of how much contextual information you wanted to give us and and how much you wanted to kind of exposit on that versus just kind of looking at the, the movies in isolation as movies or whatever? I think the structure honestly helped a lot because this isn't an, a biography of Bong. So his biographical details are mostly limited to the introduction that I wrote mm-hmm. and only really are pulled into the main chapters if they're relevant to that movie. 
And I tried to limit it, I guess, to what was, again, what was relevant to each movie, for instance, like the stuff in Memories of Murder that's about like the student uprisings and the democratic movement in Korea, like that obviously has to go in there. Whereas like in The Host, you talk about the American influence on Korean culture and stuff like that. So it was kind of cut and dry in that sense. Like I was pretty lucky that I didn't have to parse through too much in that sense. Like I knew where things were going to go pretty much from the start. And are you someone who like, you have an outline for a chapter, you start writing at the beginning, you get to the end, or do you sort of write in fragments and then kind of piece them together? Or, you know, what was your process of composition like? I feel like my editor will hate to hear this if he does listen to this podcast, but Don't I listen. write- Turn it off. Turn it this off. is true of all everything that I've written. I except for like screenplays, I write top down. I just start at the beginning and then I write through until I hit the end of it, and then I go back and we'll edit. But that's right. my very very bad uh, method of writing. Wait wait wait. Why is that bad? Why is that bad? I feel like it just flies in the face of all the advice that you tend to get <laughs> about writing, where like you should have like your structure, you mm. should have your outline, you should have like a frame already for what you want to do. But I don't know. I I'm. I write kind of more instinctually that way, I guess. Right. So like, how do you then figure out, you know, like integrating the research within it? Like, so for example, I, I usually write top down unless it's a research heavy thing. If it's a research mm-hmm. heavy thing that I'm outlining because I want to keep track of, mm-hmm. you know, where am I getting this information? Cause I'm going to have to actually cite it later or give it to a fact checker or whatever. And so it just saves time at the end if I outline at the beginning, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. so if like you're going top down, how are you thinking about, is it more you're just like, you know, you finish a paragraph and you're like, oh, I should talk about this thing that I read about over here. And then you go get it and then put it in there or? or... Um, sort of like, I think this is way too flowery of a way to describe what I do, but it's sort of like listening to a song or telling a story where like I have a sense when I'm working on each subsection of where that subsection is going to go or what I want to mm-hmm. go in it. And so like as I write, I can sort of say like, Oh, and then like this sequence is in reference to this event. And then I can go off and do a few tabs of research or whatever. I do as much research as I need to, to fill that section out properly and sort of drop in the information that I need and then sort of river the rest of it, if that makes sense. (laughs) It's like rocks in a river and the water's like flowing down through it. Um, Got it. So you're really doing research as you go. You're not doing yeah. like an extended amount of research and then writing. You're writing, getting to a point where you need That's to research something. That's how I'll start something. at least. Yeah. But if I think something is lacking in some way or if I know that there's a hole in it, then obviously I'm going to go back and do more, like do more. Were there things you felt as a writer you had to learn how to do while writing this book or that you learned, you know, through the process of writing this book? Well, this is the longest form project that I've ever worked on, as I I sort of alluded to earlier. And I think the big thing was there were definitely a couple chapters where I hadn't hit the word count that I wanted. And I think the skill there is sort of figuring out, like, is going back over what you've done and finding out what you've missed in Mm -hmm. a more significant way than if you're writing a review or something that is shorter in form because it's a bigger hole to fill. And it's also more significant because it's not like you can go in there and just fluff it, you know, like it has to have meaning. It has to contribute to the chapter in some meaningful way. And in those cases, it usually was a matter of kind of doing more research, rereading the chapter or rewatching the movie and sort of seeing like, what did I miss the first time? What did I forget to write down? Um, what else can go in here that will actually be meaningful and contribute to what I'm trying to say? Right. I think about that uh, Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a restaurant critic and his first review, <laughs> the, the he, he doesn't he can't meet the word count 
so the, the his first <laughs> review just ends with like Flanders sucks over and over and over yeah. again. You don't want to be doing that, right? You don't want to no, be doing no, the like no. Flanders sucks. You actually want to like you want it to be longer because you actually legitimately have more worthwhile to say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's interesting. How many times did you watch the movies while uh, making the book? Um, probably at least a couple times each. Once, like, yeah, because I would We're- watch once just to refresh my memory of it, and then right. maybe another time to like take notes while I was doing it. So when were you writing this, right? Because when you started it, you had a job. So how were you yeah. fitting it around your job? And and once you left that job at Slate.com, a website our listeners may have heard of, um, <laughs> did that change what your writing schedule was like? Yeah, it was honestly really, really hard to work on this book uh, with a day job. The first real chunk of writing that I got done was basically over my Christmas break. Like instead of having a Christmas vacation, I just worked on the book. And that was actually a part of the reason why I left Slate, where I asked for um, book leave. And for various reasons, it was not granted to me. And I was like, I know I need to finish this book. Like right. I have to get it done. And it's this is at that point, I was like, this is more important to me. Then, also, you have contractual deadlines. That's true. Yeah. Like, I was lucky that I got an extension at one point, but I was like, I want to finish this book. This is more important to me in my life, I think, right now. Um, so that's what I'm going to focus on, which is not an easy decision to make because staff jobs are not easy to get. <laughs> no, I mean, it, taking a risk on yourself and your own work is is that's a hard jump to make. Yeah. I mean, I remember like when I left working at the think tank to become a full time, I was working in the mm-hmm. think tank and then became a full time freelancer. Yeah. Um, I, I was in a similar situation where like I had a major piece. This was uh, real enemies, the show I did at BAM and I just wasn't going to finish it while I had that job. And so I had to leave that job, even though the, <laughs> my share of the commission for real enemies was like $8,000 or something for mm-hmm. 18 months of work. You know, I'd still, that was the thing that was more important to me. And it was terrifying. You know, and I loved my bosses. I loved that job. Like it had nothing. I wasn't scared of them. I just like the idea that it's like, I'm really going to do this. That's a hard jump to make. How did you? You were giving up a lot when you do it. Yeah. 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 How did you steal yourself up to do that? Was it just about recognizing what your priorities were or? I mean, we talk about time versus money like so much on this show, but that really was a huge part of it where like I had enough savings that I was like, I could not make money for a while and I would be okay, technically. I also knew like I had enough kind of pre-existing relationships with other editors that if I really needed to, I could pick up some freelance work. Mm-hmm. And I was also very, very lucky um, in that my partner was like, if you need financial support, I will give it to you. Like, So I had safety nets um, that I could use if I needed to in order to support myself during that time. So... The book is a coffee table book. There's a heavy design element mm-hmm. to it. How did that shape the writing and the process of of making the book? I was really, really lucky in that the design team at Little White Lies is really superb. They're really, really fantastic. And I basically didn't have to think about it at all while I was writing. Mm. The, all the stuff that's in the book is sort of takes its cues from my writing, if you will. For instance, like if I'm talking about a certain scene and that text goes on X page, the pictures that are going to be accompanying that are going to be from that scene as well. Were you involved in the design process? I mean, obviously, you're not necessarily Mm. picking the exact photos or whatever, (laughs) but like, are they consulting with you? Are you batting ideas back and forth? Do they just come to you with it or like, you have to sign off on this or, you know, what, what was that part of the process like? It's sort of half and half where all the stuff that's inside the book, I would say that 
they showed it to me and I was like, that looks great. (laughs) The only difference is like there are some, there's like a chapter ending page basically that like has the credits for the film and a special illustration. Um, And we had to work with a translator to get the text on it, right? Basically, because it's in Korean and then there is like an English translation on the bottom, but they weren't totally syncing up or weren't quite grammatically correct. But that's not really a, a layout thing, I guess. Uh, The one thing we went back and forth the most on, I would say, is the cover, because that's like the first impression that your book makes. Like you want it to really, you want to like it. Um, And so they sent me a bunch of initial design ideas. And I, that was the biggest one where I'd weigh in being like, I don't like this. I like this from this design, but can we do it like that? Um, X, Y, Z, which was a lot of fun. I I like, I I love giving my opinion. (laughs) 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 And there's something fun about like figuring out the cover for your book, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. oh shit, this is like real. Someone has put some thought into this. It's a way of thinking about the the book that you've made in a new way because now you're thinking about how do I be true to the thing I made and also rope people into reading it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I, just I mean, th- the the subtitle of Dissident Cinema was one we went back and forth a lot on, too, for this, for similar reasons. Oh, what were, can you tell us what some of the other ones were? Oh, one of the other ones we thought of was Cinema Virtuoso, which was one, because I, I was initially kind of resistant to Dissident Cinema because I, I wanted, I didn't want it to only seem political, if you know what right. I mean, where I was like, yeah, that he, there are a lot of political themes in his work, but he's not defined by that, I think. And I also didn't want... Just because every other monograph in the series is about a white director and kind of focuses more on like, ooh, like they're amazing in the subtitle. I was like, I don't want the first one that is about a filmmaker of color to like micro focus in that way. Like mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to be broader where it's like he is on the same level as these other filmmakers or else you wouldn't be writing a book about him. Why is he the only one that you talk about in this way? But I like it now, to be clear. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, as you were saying earlier, the way he handles politics in his work is not polemical. It's not like he's not like stridently making a political argument. It's embedded Mm -hmm. in the drama. It's embedded in the camera work. It's it's embedded the way it is with all those other filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And I I think I ended up liking it more when I thought about more broadly, where it's like dissident, not just in terms of political themes, but also like he is a weird filmmaker. Like he does stuff that you would not expect or think is or would find a weird from any other director. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um, as we talked about a little bit earlier, you went through a lot of life changes while writing this book. You <laughs> left Slate, you moved across the country, you're working yeah. in doing scripted TV, you know, uh, with your partner. What was it like to try to bring a book into the world in the midst of all that? Was it difficult to kind of sequester out the time and mental space or... Yeah, I mean, I felt like it was easier to do when not in a day job anymore. Well, I call it a day job, but like, you get what I mean. Like, when not having to devote so much of my time to something else. Um, But at the same time, it was tough because like, again, we moved out to LA to pursue screenwriting more. And yet I still had to devote a lot of my time to this book rather than that. And trying to work around like feelings of guilt where I was like, is my partner mad at me for like working on my book? It's like a really horrible thing to have to deal with. But (laughs) it's something that I did deal with while writing this book. I mean, yeah, I felt guilty all the time working on my on, yeah. on my book during the pandemic and everything like that. But then I was like, it is actually my job. <laughs> you know, it's like at some yeah. point it's like. It's yeah, also it's... like this is important to me. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. Um, has investing this much time, energy, smarts, you know, whatever, into the work of one filmmaker, you know, going this deep, uh-huh. has that 
change the way you think about film writ large? Like, do you find that you're watching movies in a different way or that you're asking different questions now? Or, you know, like, how is the you on the other end of this book different from the you who went into it? I think any research process like this or any process that is as demanding as writing a book about one topic the main thing that you will get out of it on the other end is obviously, number one, a deeper appreciation for the stuff that you were writing about and a deeper understanding of it. But the second thing is, I think, just a broadened sense of curiosity. Because one of the really wonderful things about Bong Joon-ho is he's very not shy about talking about the movies and other directors that he finds admirable or inspiring in some way. And that's actually one of the subsections of my book. Like Between each chapter, there are a couple pages devoted to the movies that he inspired him in some cases that directly inspired the movie that it's following or et cetera, et cetera. And it makes you want to go seek out more other stuff that you might not be familiar with before. It broadens your horizons. How do you cultivate curiosity? Cause it seems like so much of your process is about curiosity. You know, if you're listening to this show and you're like, God, I'm not a curious enough person. Uh, <laughs> what can you do to be more curious? I think it can be as simple as like reading more reviews. Like does a like if you like a certain writer, if you read what they review, like does that make you want to go see that movie? Then go see that movie. Like is there something in there that interests you? Then go try finding it out. And on on a more, I guess, immediate level, just ask your friends what they're up to, what they're doing, tag along with them if they're going to go see like a play or a ballet or something. If they say a TV show is really good, like why not check it out? If they say it's really bad, then why not check it out? <laughs> You can learn um, a lot from bad work. It's true. I mean, it can come from anywhere. I think as long as you have an open mind towards it or you're like, I will never listen to country music or something like that. Like you're closing yourself off to avenues if you're thinking that way. But as long as you're not, I think you'll have a pretty healthy stream of things to investigate in your life. Well, Karen Han, thank you so much for joining us here on Working and talking about your process. Thank you again. We hope you enjoyed this special episode of Working. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, maybe consider joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on our show and other shows, and entire bonus episodes on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. And you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Big thanks to Isaac Butler and Karen Hahn for their great interviews with each other. And thanks, as always, to our magnificent producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with our annual New Year's resolution episode. You'll hear our creative goals for 2023 and how well we stuck to last year's resolutions. Until then, get back to work. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.